what we're going to do tonight, again, is something that we haven't done before uh, here, um, but it should be interesting, if nothing else, right? Like, this, you guys all open up for some new experiences, maybe? No. Uh, no? Okay, well. <laughs> you may be. <laughs> Put the no's on that side and the yeses on that side, okay? <laughs> oh, wait, no, the no's on that side. No. Um, so, yeah, if you would like a print copy of the blog that Steve wrote, the two blog um, posts, if, uh, if you'd like a print copy of one to have with you right now, uh, hopefully some of you at least have been able to go online and read the blog um, in the two parts on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and have some familiarity with the, with the blog if, or with the post. If you don't, that's okay because Steve is going to read them too in just a couple of minutes. So don't feel like you have to start reading right now if you have not already read it. It will be read to you by the author in just a second, and I'm sure he'll autograph your copies after the service if you'd like. Um, <laughs> so um, I think while Steve is handing those out, how many of you, I think I'm going to get started with a couple of things, how many of you know, who have ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the American pronunciation? Okay, cool. So the mass majority of you. How many of you um, have read something of his? Okay. Uh, so he has a number of books that are really popular. I mentioned one of them earlier, and that is Life Together. It's probably a shorter work that is uh, it's also extremely powerful, very poignant. Um, probably his best-known work would be Discipleship. Uh, it's usually referred to now as just Discipleship. It's traditionally called in the United States The Cost of Discipleship. And it's a really profoundly powerful book. Um, I have a couple copies of it. If somebody would like to borrow a copy of it, that would be one's gone. Um, <laughs> and I think I could share, a, I have a Kindle copy of it as well, I think. I might be able to share that. I've had some success doing that in the past. So, And I'm sure you could check it out, and they must have it at the library, available in Kindle format or in print format or both. So if you are, I would really, hide, it's a bigger work. It's, it's fairly intellectual, um, but really profound, wonderfully done. So in light of some uh, lack of familiarity some of you may have with his life, I want to read a little short, hopefully somewhat short, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, he was born in, how do you pronounce this, B-R-E-S-L-A-U, Germany? Breslau. What's that? Breslau. Breslau. Okay, just like it looks, right? Sure. Uh, so he was born in Germany <laughs> in 1906. Interestingly, his family, they were not religious, but they had a strong, strong desire for music and art. Um, from an early age, Bonhoeffer displayed great, a great musical talent, and music was important throughout his life. His family, they were all quite taken back when he, at the age of 14, announced that he wanted to train to become a priest, um, not coming from a, a, a religious heritage at all, and all of a sudden to announce he wanted to be a priest. It would probably be shocking to his parents, or to any, but any parents, and certainly to his it was. In 1927, he graduated from the University of Berlin. He gained a doctorate in theology for his influential thesis, Sanctorum Communo, or the Communion of the Saints. After graduating, he spent time in Spain and America, which gave him a wider outlook on life and helped him move from academic study to a more practical interpre interpretation and application of the Gospels. He was moved by the concept of the church's involvement in social justice and protection of those who were oppressed. His wide travels also encouraged a greater interest in ecumenism, which is how churches work together or the desire for churches to work together. In 1931, he returned to Berlin and was ordained as a priest at age 25. In the early 1930s, that was a period of great upheaval in Germany and there was great instability throughout Germany and un mass un unemployment and a Great Depression, leading to the, interestingly, election of Hitler in 1933. While the election of Hitler was widely welcomed, which maybe shocked some of you, um, by the German population, including significant parts of the church, Bonhoeffer was a firm opponent to Hitler's philosophy. Two days after Hitler's election as chancellor in January of 1933, Bonhoeffer made a radio broadcast criticizing Hitler, and in particular the danger of an idolatrous cult of the, of the Fuhrer. 
His broadcast was cut off midway through. In 1933, Bonhoeffer raised his opposition to the persecution of Jews and argued that the church had a responsibility to act against this kind of policy. Bonhoeffer sought to organize the Protestant church to firmly reject Nazi, theology, Nazi, Nazi ideology from infiltrating the church. This led to a breakaway church, the Confessing Church, which Bonhoeffer helped form with Martin Niemöller. The Confessing Church sought to stand in opposition to the Nazis and to the German Christian movement as a whole. I was talking to somebody earlier today that, that a lot of folks don't recognize how much Nazi Germany grew up as a, and that movement grew up as a, as, as, with a lot of church backing. Um, anyway, we're going to get into that a little bit more. Um, he found that in practice, a lot of this resistance was difficult, and, um, and it, was, uh, it was just difficult to get people to listen to him, and it was difficult to uh, encourage people to have some hope amidst such disillusion. Um, in the autumn of 1933, he took a two-year appointment, this being of um, Bonhoeffer, of course, um, to a German-speaking Protestant church in London. After two years in London, London, he returned to Berlin. He felt a call to return to his native country and share its struggles, despite the bleak outlook. Shortly after his return, one of the leading, um, one leader of the Confessing Church, were arrested and fled to Switzerland. Bonhoeffer had his authorization to teach revoked in 1936 in Germany after being denounced as a pacifist and an enemy of the state. As, not, as the Nazi control of Germany intensified in 1937, the Confessing Church Seminary was closed down. Over the next two years, Bonhoeffer traveled throughout eastern Germany, conducting seminaries, uh, seminars in, pri in private to sympathetic students. During this period, Bonhoeffer wrote extensively on subjects of theological interest. This included, it was in this framework that he wrote The Cost of Discipleship a study in the Sermon on the Mount, and argued for a greater spiritual discipline to practice and to achieve what he has referred to, and you probably heard this term before, costly grace in place of cheap grace. Um, worried by the fear of being asked to take an oath to Hitler or be arrested, Bonhoeffer left Germany and came to the United States in June of 1939. After less than two years, he returned to Germany because he felt guilty for seeking sanctuary and not having the courage to practice what he preached. On his return to Germany, Bonhoeffer was denied the right to speak in public or publish any article. However, he managed to join the EBWAR, the German Military Intelligence Agency. Before his visit to the U.S., Bonhoeffer had already made contacts with some military officers who were opposed to Hitler. Um, he joined them in his work. They joined him in his work. And um, though Bonhoeffer did not at this point get involved in any direct plots to assassinate Hitler, he was aware of various plots to, to assassinate Hitler. Um, it was during that time, those darkest hours of the Second World War, that he began to question, as many believe anyway, um, his, his pacifist attitudes. Um, let's see. Within, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of things. Bear with me, I'm sorry. Bonhoeffer was later arrested, not necessarily in a direct, um, as a direct, because he had a direct involvement with any plot to assassinate Hitler, but more specifically because they saw him as a pacifist that was an uh, enemy to the state. He was involved for sure with hiding uh, several Jews and helping Jews flee asylum into Switzerland. And so for those reasons or the specific reasons he was arrested, those are the specific reasons he was also tried. And he was also put to death specifically for those reasons. The link of him in a plot to assassinate Hitler has always been a little bit elusive. Some people actually... Um, don't believe he was actually in straightforwardly involved. Nonetheless, most people do believe that he was. Um, on April 8, 1945, Bonhoeffer was sentenced to death by hanging. Like many of the conspirators, he was hung by a wire. 
to prolong the death. He was hung with his fellow conspirators. Um, Just before his execution, he asked a fellow inmate to relate a message to the bishop, George Bell of Cheshire. This is the end, he says. For me, though, the beginning of life. Um, The camp director said this about Bonhoeffer. I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer just before he died, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I've hardly seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Some of the things Bonhoeffer was passionate about is obviously social action, implementing the ideals of the gospel in the midst of his life. He was passionate about that. He was was very passionate about others discovering the necessity of not just believing, but obeying. If you read discipleship, you'll discover a lot of conversation about obedience and belief that you have to have In order to believe, you have to be obedient. And in order to be obedient, you have to believe. Mm, Think about that one for a little while. Um, He also gave greater importance to the central nature of Jesus Christ, the responsibility of Christians to imitate his life in teaching. So with that all said, just giving you a little bit of background on Bonhoeffer, um, I'm going to let just Steve take over. And he's going to say a few words, and he's going to read this first blog post, after which we'll open the floor up to some questions, thoughts, comments, struggles. And we have some canned stuff, too, in case you don't come up with anything. But I bet you will. Yeah. A quick introduction. Uh, I'm Steve Brown. Uh, You probably know me as I'm an elder here. I play in the band. Um, I am a retired journalist. And to me, it is important that you know where you're getting information from, what channel. Um, Whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC or ABC or get your news off the internet from your friends on Facebook, um, it's important you know what kind of perspective a reporter has. So this reporter, uh, since we're going to be talking tonight about allegiances, about uh, freedoms, patriotism, I think you should know I'm a veteran. I served in the Army during Vietnam, not in Vietnam, but during that time. I was drafted and then soon after re-enlisted. In the Army, if if you're a veteran or you know any veterans, you know that you wear what they give you to wear. You go where they tell you to go. You do what they tell you to do. The guys in the military, men and women, have given up freedoms for the period of time they're in because to us, us veterans, it's important that we all have the freedoms. And I was willing to give it up for that period of time. And so it's a sacrifice. Also, it's an investment. I made an investment of my time, my freedom, for this country. I love the United States of America. I love God more. I don't want to get tied up in patriotism, love of country, but be be directed by what I hear from God. And that's what really grabbed me about about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I know his name is correctly pronounced Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but in the interest of us American speakers, I'll keep the American pronunciation. Then hatred became politically correct. Now, now I'm going to start sounding, going to start sounding like Colonel Plink, right? <laughs> okay. So I'm just going to read the first of these blogs. When hatred became politically correct. And in this writing, I do not promote any specific actions except prayer. God is your source. Jesus is your advocate. And the spirits are your guide. Two generations ago, Adolf Hitler rose to power in Europe because he blamed all the right people. That may be a simplistic observation of a complicated time in world history, but that is my reaction 
to reading Eric Metaxas's biography of Christian theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What frightens me is that lately I hear reverberations of the same hatred, reflections of the same kind of finger pointing coming from leaders and political candidates in the US. I approach this biography with a question in mind. What did the Christians in Germany do as this upheaval was taking place? Was the church powerless? What surprised me most was the author's description of how the Nazi movement redefined Christianity into something more to its liking. Hitler said Christianity preached meekness and flabbiness, but Nazi ideology promoted ruthlessness and strength. Mercy was a sign of weakness to the Nazis. Hitler labeled himself a Catholic, but he was an admirer of philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, society has never regarded virtue as anything else than as a means to strength, power, and order. So Nazi leaders encouraged a German Christian movement, which adopted Aryan racial principles, working toward the paganism of tribal Germanic gods and Nazi extremes. They blamed Jews, Poles, communists, gypsies, anyone not of pure Aryan descent for the plight of Germany in the wake of the First World War. In the German Christian church, Jesus was redefined as Aryan, not Jew. And the idea of him being sacrificed for our sins, certainly too Jewish a concept. Alfred Rosenberg planned a National Reich Church, which would halt publishing and disseminating the Bible in German, and would declare Hitler's book Mein Kampf as the greatest of all documents. It would remove the Christian cross from churches and chapels, and replace it with, quote, the only unconquerable symbol, the swastika. Hitler himself would become the Messiah, leading Europe and the world into a new era of power and peace. He outlawed all dissent, arresting pastors who spoke boldly. Eventually, all pastors were required to swear allegiance to Hitler. As the teachings of Jesus were twisted into pure evil, the German people were torn between love of God and love of country. But the teachings of Jesus are just what we need to return to now. As many of us are caught in that same dilemma, our master and our Bible say love. Our leaders say hate. They play on our emotions and even our national pride to draw us away from what Christ taught. We hear strident voices urging us to blame Arabs Blame Mexicans, blame homosexuals, blame activist judges, blame the 1%, blame Democrats, blame Republicans, blame lobbyists, blame liberals, blame fundamentalists, blame gun nuts, blame welfare moms. It is no wonder that our one nation under God is foundering, being torn in so many directions. God is nowhere in those blames. Is it too far a stretch? to see an American Christian church being formed around such voices? Amid all this frustration, where is the church? Does it respond to the culture, or does it affect the culture? Does it withdraw safely behind the security of its walls, or does it find a way to reach out? Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a devout man of learning and prayer, wondered if the church would even survive the Nazis. But through his writings, he offers us some answers. He observed in his native Germany the confusion that inevitably arises when the Christian faith becomes too closely related to a cultural or national identity. In his journeys to America, he observed in liberal churches that tolerance often trumps truth. Liberty is the only unifying factor, he said. Instead, he insisted, community is created through encounter people searching the scriptures in humility and devotion to Jesus, dis discovering together what it means to follow him. Denominational labels are unimportant, he said. The important thing is God's word. One cannot simply read the Bible like other books. One must be prepared to really inquire of it. Taking direct action, Bonhoeffer helped organize the Confessing Church, which would assert traditional Christian teachings. It stood against the heresies of the Reich Church and against the inhumanity of the Nazi regime. 
Allegiance to anyone but Christ, he said, even to one's own nation or political leaders, is heresy. I'll read that again. Allegiance to anyone but Christ, he said, even to one's own nation or political leaders, is heresy. The church has an obligation to victims of the ordering of society, that referring to what the Nazis were doing within Germany. An obligation to the victims of the ordering of society, he said, even if they are not of the Christian community. Also, the church should take action against the state to stop it from perpetrating evil. To that end, Bonhoeffer became part of a conspiracy to return Germany to something he could be proud of again to overthrow the Nazis, even to assassinate Hitler himself. Bonhoeffer knew he was risking his own life by carrying his faith to such extremes. The Nazis were not about to tolerate direct resistance. This man of God must have gone through intense inner turmoil to arrive at such conclusions, to justify such actions. One statement stood out to me. He likened Hitler to a drunken driver mowing down pedestrians it is the responsibility of everyone to, pre to prevent the driver from killing more people. He wrote, commitment to God depends on a God who demands responsible action in a bold venture of faith and who promised forgiveness and consolation to the man who becomes a sinner in that venture. Bonhoeffer was more zealous to please God than to avoid sin was more zealous to please God than to avoid sin. Can you put your name at the beginning of that statement? We're going to stop. Sorry. So we're going we're to stop now at this point. And honestly, we may not get past this point tonight. We may continue this discussion into next week with the second part of the blog. Depends upon how things go and how you all are feeling about this after we get done tonight. So, do you have, are there, I want to just open the floor up for the congregation. Um, if you do ask a question, I'm either going to ask you to ask it slowly or to speak it into the mic because we're recording this and it won't come through if you don't speak it into the mic. So I would prefer that if you would, that way we don't have to repeat it. Now that I've tipped you off to the fact that you're going to have to be mic'd, does anyone have, does anybody have a question, a thought? I mean, there's some really deep stuff going on here, right? We have a tendency to be pretty fluffy oftentimes, but when you're in the midst of something like Bonhoeffer had to go through, you can't be fluffy about your faith. So is there anything that just jumps out at you here that you want to talk about or ask about? Uh, well, my thought was from the very end about he considered it more important to please God than to avoid sin. And uh, my thought is that uh, not obeying God when you recognize that there is something that you are called to, even if it puts you in a very difficult, uh, ethically difficult, morally, spiritually difficult situation where you have to determine the lesser of two evils, that when you do have a clear understanding of what you should be doing, avoiding that is sin. And when God calls you to do something in your life, when you run the other direction and you're disobedient, even if he's calling you to do something that uh, you're possibly unsure about or it seems like it might not be the right way to go, like in Bonhoeffer's situation, he knew that if he did not pursue some kind of action and at least just move forward and see where God would be taking him with this venture, it would be sinful just to sit where he was and put his head in the ground and ignore the situation. That's good. It's like apathy is the worst thing we could do. I can bring it to you. You don't have to. You can, you can whatever you want to do. I'll sit back down. Excuse me. So when I think about this, I remember a po something that when we start talking about Germany, it was Christians and Christians, but different areas. One of the things you posted recently on Facebook was about how we have 
just like um, our music, we've been, we've kind of, in the United States, been pushed off into a little section as Christians. We have our Christian music, we have our, you know, and it's not, we're not part of that. Um, people have taken over what's social justice. That's no longer just the church that does those things. And, and some of it is we have to step out in the faith as Christians and show that instead of going out and blaming everybody for the things that are happening, instead of trying to defend our positions and circle the wagons, we need to step out and be part of the world and show that those other areas and the other churches that may be out there are not how true Christians are. Yeah, amen. That's that's good. Undoubtedly. Um, so you can see a little bit of that kind of thing happening prior to Hitler's basically takeover of the German government, where what it meant to be a Christian wasn't well-defined. You have a church that's really unformed in Germany that are licking their wounds from World War I, where they were basically highly embarrassed. And instead of recognizing that God might be in the midst of their, of their seeming loss of status, they became prideful, arrogant, and hurt, and, or maybe hurt, and then prideful and arrogant. And Hitler built on that. The, the Christian people within Germany did not know how to respond to Loss. They didn't know how to see God involved in that journey and in that process. And again, Hitler played on that greatly. Um, there wasn't a, a solid foundation set for what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant, honestly, to suffer. Um, something that Bonhoeffer himself in, uh, in, in uh, discipleship, in the cost of discipleship, writes about at great length um, the call for Christians to suffer and what Christian suffering looks like. So... Um, well, um, this reminded me the end, like Kat was talking about, of um, a couple other people who have wrote similar things. Um, Albert Einstein, forgive me, I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but he talks about the people in the world who commit the worst deeds aren't the most evil. It's everybody else who sits back and does nothing about it. And then also a quote from Dante, where he talks about the hottest regions of hell being reserved for those who remain their neutrality. Their neutrality. So, um, that just came. I find this very interesting as a student of history. Um, this is something actually I've, I've had a lot of occasion to talk about and, and, and to think about. And um, one of the things that always stands out to me about this, about this period of history and, and about how it resonates with our own time and our own culture is, is the addiction to power. That, that we see. You know, you notice what uh, Hitler's big advertising point was, was, you know, with this ruthlessness, with this mercilessness, will come power, will come strength. And, you know, and we see this so much in, in our own country. We see, the, we see this addiction to power. We look to power as being the, the, the means to solve all problems, you know, whether it's economic power or military power or whatever. And this is not the way of Christ. And, and this seems to be like what, what Bonhoeffer's fundamental thesis is here, is that this isn't the way of Christ. Christ calls us to submit, to suffer, to die even. And, and it is so diametrically opposed to that that I, I think it's sometimes almost really hard for you know, we in the church to even wrap our heads around just how radically different it is, because it is a radical faith that 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 is what the call is for. It's to lay down our lives, not to save them by some other means. Um, 
and and I think that's I think that's very interesting. So it, I don't know. It kind of like almost leads me to ask the question of what then do we do on a nuts and bolts, you know, day to day level? How do we put this into practice on a on a on a material level? Like you know, what will we do tomorrow? Each one of us to to do this. <laughs> you know, I, I can't help but like I, I always. Of course, you know, being a huge fantasy fiction fan and everything, I always go. My mind always goes back to uh, the 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 cautionary tale of uh, of Tolkien, which is actually being written, of course, during this time period, and the the parable of of needing to get rid of the Ring of Power because power is what is the problem, and it's just like my mind always goes back to that. How about how hard it is to get rid of power? Anyway, it's just. So can I just put you on the spot for a sure. second? What do you think day to day then? What do we what do we do about some of the issues just with power? How do we respond? Um Well, I know for myself, my biggest reason for needing power is fear. Hmm. Um fear of what'll happen if I don't have the power, fear of what other people will do to me. If I don't grasp, if I don't grasp, or fear of what other people's power will do to me, um, and I know that drives an awful lot of my own personal feeling of a need for control and a need for power, and it is really, really destructive to my faith. And it's something actually that only just recently I've actually had a occasion to appreciate just how serious it is. So, uh, on a nuts and bolts level. I would say that the first thing to do is to figure out what it is that you're doing in your life that you're doing because you're afraid of the consequence, <laughs> you know, that you're doing because you're afraid of something. Right. Um, then figure out how to, you know, th then figure out how to trust God with it, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which is easier to say than do sometimes. So, like, you're talking about starting with yourself? And where you're surrendering to power or afraid of power or trying to amass power for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, Steve and I talked about this quite a bit. I think it was Tuesday, Wednesday, I don't know. Um, like, Jesus doesn't diminish that there is power. He comes with power. And he talks about use of power. Um, and Gregory Boyd, a contemporary theologian that in some ways reminds me of Bonhoeffer overall, uh, he writes concerning, and you probably heard me quote him before, and there's others that say similar things, but Jesus calls us to a power under rather than a power over. So every single one of us has been given some amount of power. You have a fist, you could go hit somebody with it if you so chose. Or that same hand that you could curl up into a fist could hold somebody up or could reach out and lovingly touch somebody. So what are, with the power that you have, what are you going to do with the power you're going to have? And then, how are you going to resist those who are lording power over? Right? That can be where it's really tricky because we need to still learn that same power under, even to oppose those who are using power in lording over. And that's, we can get so easily, I can, get so, if, I hope that made a little sense to you. It can, I can get so easily swept away, and I think we just as, fallible, broken, sinful human beings can get so swept away to the want to respond with power over those that are using power over. Yeah. What's powerful about Bonhoeffer, though he arguably gets involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler, which is a little, looks a little like power over, he is not, he's not passive, he's not flippant, he's not just... Um, he engages deeply that struggle. Like, that's his tension. At, the heart, at heart, he became a pacifist. He wasn't early in his life. He actually spoke of not being a pacifist, thinking it was crazy. When he started studying deeply the Sermon on the Mount, he realized, wait a second, um, I, think, I, I, think, I think Jesus was a pacifist, and I think we need to seek pacifist ways. And so he immersed himself in a pacifist life. And this is what he comes to the situation with concerning Hitler with. 
is these desires not to kill and destroy and use power over to defeat power over because that would just be surrendering to the same thing. But what do you do when you have this tyrannical leader drunken in a car running people over? What do you do? How do you, is it, is it, is it better to sit back apathetically and do nothing? That would be wrong. Or do you run the guy off the road or bomb his car or shoot him? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? At the end of the day, what I absolutely love about Hitler is he doesn't pretend, and none of his writings make it sound as though when you mean, he... You mean sorry, I said bon, Yeah, sorry. Who did I say? Hitler. Hitler, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the correction. That Bonhoeffer did not have the idea that he could stand up after involving himself in such a thing, beat his chest and say, look at me, I am a great person for what I just did. Um, he references people like Martin Luther, um, who, though this would take a lot of explaining, who says things like, sin boldly. Um, don't pretend that life is easy. Don't pretend like you are finding yourself in situations where there's an easy out all the time. Sometimes other people's horrible decisions leave us in situations to have to make horrible decisions. But never can we then beat our chests and say how wonderful we are. Rather, it's throwing ourselves at the mercy of God. I wish so much, I wish so much any time, any country, or any individual in any capacity decided to go into war, that we went there first. That we recognized that what we are doing in, do, in, in engaging in that kind of violence is atrocious. Um, and that it's simply based on the mercy of God that we can stand forgiven. So, well, when Bonhoeffer started decided to take action, he he counted the cost. Isn't that the, the scripture? Count the cost of what you're going to be doing. And he saw at the end of the road that he would likely end up dead. That we'll deal with that one in the next blog. But that's just like Jesus. He saw at the end of the road, Jerusalem, Gethsemane, the cross, and. It, the resurrection, but he saw the whole thing. He saw what he'd have to go through. They didn't plan to be what we would call successful. Success is a totally different thing in God's eyes, I think, than in ours. Success is laying your life down. And that is not an easy thing for us who got comfortable life um, in different degrees for us, you know. Um, but putting our hands individually and as a church, not just gather, but as the believers, the, the followers of Jesus, the believers in God, that the end of our path, we have to see it as death, which in nobody else's eyes is success. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And there's a couple of hands that have been up over here for a while, too, but Ken, let's get Ken back there first. Yeah, I've, I've studied a lot on um, World War II. My family is all from Germany. Um, you know, my mother got a German accent. And I've always wondered, <laughs> I've always wondered how, how something like that can come about, because that is just, I, I, you know, and I think what happened, people don't realize that Hitler played on emotions, fear, and anger. And those are primal emotions. Those are the ones that act real good. And, you know, you have to have to realize that. That's how things happen. If you get in a period in time where people are really scared or they're really mad about something, and you have somebody that can capitalize on that, you can be manipulated. And um, you, Hitler, he did a lot of strange stuff to get into power. Mm -hmm. uh, they capitalize on a lot of things. So... I just, you know, in Bonhoeffer, I haven't really read any of his writings, but I've read the history of him, and, you know, I've always been amazed. Um, you know, he was kind of a humble guy, but he, he had the guts to do what he did. Absolutely. He was, could have played it safe, you know, and that's, I think that was the same thing somebody else said, that, you know, we can play it safe or you can, and he, he walked it, so. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really appreciate that about him, too, because, you know, he had that time where he escaped to the United States, and then he flat out recognized he can't do that, right? He can't, like, he can't fail to practice what he's preached and wrote about and found convicted of. Like, he needed to go back 
and try and deal with what was going on there somehow, some way. And that's like, that is truly humble, right? I mean, like, he's like, I'm blowing it right now. I need to change ways. I need to go in a different direction and face this straight up. So, yeah. Well, the part in the reading that um, caught my eyes was uh, the importance of the word. Uh, the important thing is God's word. One can simply read the can't simply read the Bible like other books. One must be prepared to really inquire of it. And it made me think of you can read it from front to back, but you won't get anything out of it. But if you break it down in chapters and ask questions, you'll be able to understand and understand God's will for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. That it's there's something more going on in our reading than simply moving from page to page, right? Um, yeah, we need to come to it with our entire selves. Linda had a, had one since we're up here in the front. Did you, Linda? Were you raising your hand? Were you raising your hand on behalf of Chad? What amazes me is the fact that all this has gone on and. Ed, Adolf, Adolf Hitler has just, he, he thinks he's a god. He's not. He did, yeah. You know, and it just, you just don't know what to say about it sometimes. Yeah. So you just have to sit and think a lot. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right behind you. We'll move our way back. Um, what's really scary is that I was watching something on the History Channel, and there were talking about um, the eugenics project uh, project or philosophy, which I had never heard anything about. And it was in like the, like the 20s or the 30s, and it was a movement in America that um, a lot of, it was like in, I think the guy he was from Missouri, and he was, you know, pushing for this philosophy. And I guess Hitler... He got a hold of the guy's book, and he's, he's, that's what he started, his perfect race. That's where he got the idea for his perfect race from, which is really scary because, you know, the, the philosophy came from America. So, you know, this idea, you know, could have spread over here, but, you know, it's America, so it didn't go far. Thank right. goodness. <laughs> Americans are smarter than that. Yeah, so it's the idea that you're trying to weed out certain people that are weak, certain people that are not uh, of a particular race, people, right, you're trying, that's the idea of this philosophy, is that, yeah, so the Aryan movement moves perfectly with this idea of trying to create this perfect race of people, eliminating everybody else, the poor, the maimed, the people that don't have the right color eyes, or that are crippled, or any kind of defect, you're trying to weed everybody out, yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 It. Yep. 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 Yeah, and it, it's crazy how much that gripped the United States. Yes. Well, Ken had asked, you know, how can this, how can, how could this have started, you know? I mean, we look in hindsight and think, wow, didn't anybody see this coming? But, you know, you look in our own country right at this very moment in time, you know, even go, like go to the Ferguson killings, all of a sudden it's inflamed this whole thing about, you know, African Americans thinking the whites are out to get them. So they're shooting. And then this thing about going out and shooting police officers because all police officers are bad. And then it's, you know, and then it goes into this thing about people going and shooting people and therefore people who own guns are bad. And then everybody's, like Steve had said, everybody's finding blame with somebody else. But the fact is, we are all sinners. We're a country of sinners. And unless we engage the problem, which is that we are sinners. No gun control law, no police officer brutality, whatever. No, no, nothing is going to change the heart of man. Yeah. Um, and that's something that has to be balanced, though, I think, against social justice. Because oftentimes churches will say, well, we need to go out and evangelize and preach to people and you know, teach them 
about the way of Jesus and show them the gospel, but then they don't do anything when they see injustices happening. And I think it's a balance that, yes, we need to show the world and tell the world about God's salvation and how we can escape, sort of, how we can escape that path of following sin all of our lives. But on the other hand, it's not just a passive thing where we just speak it. We have to actually live it and do it. Yeah, it's we we I don't I don't feel like I need to piggyback on everything everybody says by any means, but I mean you're just inspiring me to think about stuff that Okay, thanks. Oh, oh I'm not talking very loud. I was mumbling. Um the like one of the things that's happened in the secularization of the United States has been the privatization of Christianity. Christianity isn't supposedly this goes back a little bit to what Darren was talking about. You know, you got Christian things, and then you've got the world's things. And you Christians go over and do your stuff over here. And unfortunately, too many times we've said, okay, um, you want to feed the poor? Uh, okay, well, we won't do that anymore. Um, you want to uh, concern yourself with, with poverty? You want to concern yourself with education? You want to concern yourself with health? Things that the, that the church used to always be involved in have been taken over, and they've said to us, you aren't welcome here anymore. And unfortunately, like I say, we've said, okay, well, go ahead. You guys do it then. But we have something that the, the, the rest of those don't have, right? We have an opportunity to see people's lives transformed, right? But we have to offer that hope still of the kingdom of God that cares about all of those things that we've given up, right? That care about people's health, that care about people being fed, that care about people being educated, that care about all these things, again, that we have historically cared about, but we don't seem to anymore. Instead, we just get together on a Sunday morning and sing some songs and go about our life and don't really live out this call that Jesus has on us. So I saw something this morning that really gripped me. We know about the, the flood of people, the refugees fleeing Syria, right? And they're, they're getting into boats, they're, they're crossing borders, they're trying to get away from ISIS and their, their president, who is almost as bad. Uh, when these people hit the boats, they don't know if they're going to survive to get anywhere. The film clip I saw was um, all these boats, these rafts, floating up uh, on, the, on the beaches at Greece. And welcoming them there were people from Samaritan's Purse. That got me. I thought, these are people coming, and they're, they're wanting to come to America too. These are people who, have de who our, are our enemies in some ways. But the Samaritan, the Samaritan is the one who took care of the person who was not his, of his people. I think, okay, Jesus directly pointed to that, and I'm thinking, do, so we invite the enemy into our homeland, into our homes? Who was it that said, overcome evil with good? Trump's <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I got it from somebody else. I can't remember the source. <laughs> he's, but... <laughs> he's, getting, he's getting the information somewhere. So it's, it's difficult decisions, and it's they're counterintuitive, but didn't Jesus turn a whole lot of stuff on its head? Yeah. yeah. And it may not be what would lead to success in anybody's eyes, but God, he's the one that we choose to, to please, right? Yeah. Amen. So we have time for just a couple more. Um, and, uh, and we were going to continue this into next week. So if you have a thought or a question, don't feel like you have to get it out today necessarily so yeah Nathan. well i i know that jesus said that we need to that uh, how do you say it i know you've heard it said to hate your enemy but i tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so it seems to me that if there are people who are hurting coming to us the best thing to do would be to help them and show them that Amen. love is the best way Absolutely, absolutely. We have to remember that during World War II, even America wasn't the good guy in everything. Because after Pearl Harbor, we rounded up all the Asians and put them in camps. And 
if we look at today's candidates for president, there's a certain candidate that wants to round up all the Mexicans and send them back to Mexico. Where's the church standing on that? Why are we not uprising and saying, hey, what's going on with that? We need to do something. We need to take a stand instead of just sitting by and actually voting for this guy. I'll so, get people excited. <laughs> <laughs> Just one last thing. Yeah. Steve, you did a great job. That's an excellent article, very thought-provoking. I hope it goes viral, and I think you deserve an applause for it. Yeah. So some of the questions that we didn't get to were things like, I mean, we, 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 and, and this is part of a much larger conversation, one that actually has been taking place in this church since we really started, honestly. Um, so... Like thing, things like, um, there's a set of questions that Steve had here. Uh, and it's a little in keeping with Jenna's uh, thought there. Um, amid this frustration, where is the church? Amid the frustrations of things that we have going on today, where is the church? Does it respond to culture or does it affect the culture? Does it withdraw safely behind the wall, security of its walls, or does it find a way to reach out? Where is the church? Where are we today? How are we involved in these things? I think we honestly are very involved, we could be more involved in certain areas than in others. Maybe God is inspiring you to be passionate about some particular area that the church needs to stand up. Um, we also must remember, in keeping with all of it, that, uh, that there is a kingdom that we truly serve, and it's God's kingdom. And it's broken into our, right into our, into our community, right into our midst. And that is, that is, the, that is the, the kingdom of which we are citizens and the one that we know where our allegiances must lie because our, they ultimately are to Jesus our King. So I'll one, give Steve the last word. One quick thing. Um, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw what was happening to his country, he knew that he could no longer just believe something. He had to do something. And his active response was to pray. I think that in light of what Jenna was saying there, where is this country going? I think we can pray in agreement, ask God to give us godly leaders. And I'm hoping that not just gather church, but that the church, we who love God and love our country, can agree in that, ask God to give us godly leaders. Otherwise, you know, if, if we, it may just be the continuing division between where the country's going and God's kingdom. And then it'll come down to each one of us to choose. But in the meantime, let's pray for godly leaders. Father, we lift, we lift our nation up to you. We, we want our children to grow up in a safe place. We want our grandchildren to be happy and to have opportunities. But Father, the main thing we want is your kingdom to come. In Jesus' name. <laughs>